Well, we'll continue our exploration this uh, morning of spiritual practices that God may be calling us to engage in. We'll do that today by reviewing the practice of simplicity, as it may have been the most applicable discipline for the church in first century ancient Smyrna. Admittedly, that one may not be one of the top three or top five or, shoot, maybe even top ten uh, that may come to mind initially for you. But with just a cursory understanding of it, which I hope we can achieve within the next 10, 15 minutes or so, I, I think you'll find how applicable it may be not just for this particular first century church, but maybe even more so for the 21st century church in America. I say that because many of the dominant trappings of our society war against the practice of simplicity. We're told that we should crave things or position or power to the point that we don't even realize that that message is being communicated, I'm afraid. Even those we hold as heroes, be it in real life or in mythology or story, are most often the poor who become rich rather than the rich who voluntarily give what is theirs. I want to clarify that the suggestion of simplicity as a practice is not endorsing a life in which God withholds needed material possessions or needed provisions of life. In fact, in the eyes of God, the loving Father that He is, I would suggest that there is just as much unintended misery when basic provisions are lacking as there is when materialism becomes all-consuming. The issue is the extreme on either end of that spectrum. In many ways, though, simplicity is the proper, and I may even say healthy, perspective relative to possessions. It may require something of a reorientation of our thinking that will allow possessions, those things given to us in our lives by God, to be enjoyed as God intended. Hear these words from the second chapter of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who Say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may remember the message to the church in Ephesus. We'll read next week the message to the church in Pergamum. And most of the remaining seven churches will have within the message of Christ to that particular church 
Something like, but this I hold against you. You'll remember the church in Ephesus, it, had, it was that they had abandoned their first love. Others have other things specifically that the Lord brings to their mind as something that is intrinsically or obviously lacking or wrong in the church. This message to this church in Smyrna is interesting in that it does not include that. There is no major defect or deficit that Jesus points out. There's no, but this I hold against you. Makes them unique in the first century churches. Who were the folk to whom the message that we just read was addressed, and what was their environment like? We mentioned the importance of commerce in Ephesus last week. As you can see from this map, Smyrna is only about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It also was a major trade city, and as such, it had great wealth. It was an ancient city, even more ancient than first century. <laughs> first built in the fourth century BC, and by the first century AD, it was already called the Glory of Asia. The way the city was designed, though, was very intentional. It was designed in a way that ensured that pagan temples were its center point. There were temples associated with the worship of Apollo and Aphrodite and Zeus. So you can see the major Greek influence that already existed. You'll remember, hopefully, ancient history. The Greeks were the major power before the Romans. So Christians that were meeting in Smyrna in the first century were meeting in extremely humble, to put it nicely, humble locations, far from the glories and splendor of the temples that existed in their city. It would have been easy to overlook the Christians that met, most likely in very humble homes. The political significance and pagan worship of the city of Smyrna made it the perfect locale for something similar to what existed in Ephesus, imperial worship, the worship of the emperor. One author suggested that nowhere can life have been more dangerous for a Christian than in Smyrna. With the arrival of Christianity and the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, by definition implying, of course, that Caesar was not, Christians fell into direct conflict with the dominant forces in their city. This threat notwithstanding, this group of believers realized what they had in Christ, and they stood faithful. While Christians in Smyrna, like I mentioned, are one, there's actually one other church that we'll, we'll run across in Revelation for whom a specific sin or a specific problem is not listed. They still had room for growth. Just like we do as a church or as individuals. Verse 9 outlines some of the troubles that their context included or soon would include. Tribulation, poverty, and danger. 
in light of our study and the suggestion that simplicity was the uh, practice that this group may well embrace, I, I think poverty was the one that stood out to me. This word leads some to conclude that in spite of the wealth of the city in which they live, the Christians in Smyrna, maybe as a direct result of them being Christians in Smyrna, had very little. Some believe that the word could better be translated destitute rather than poverty. While without earthly wealth, they held tightly to the one who had introduced himself in his message to the church as the first and the last. The one who died and is now risen. Those characteristics reminded the Christians in Smyrna that this life, whatever it includes or does not include, is not that which lasts. The one who lasts is the resurrected Christ. The one who had died and was now risen. What, what could be done to them? If they died, as Paul says, they would live with Christ. Though apparently without much materially, perhaps the message from the one they served implied simplicity as a good option of a discipline to focus on. The central point of this particular practice is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which then allows everything else to be held in proper order or perspective. One author suggested that the inward reality of simplicity creates a life, I love this phrase, of joyful unconcern for possessions. Of joyful unconcern for possessions. I think that phrase is language worthy of our consideration. Note that there are things that it's saying and things that it does not say. It does not say that you don't need anything, right? Or that, you know, go, go at, and, uh, uh, and, and, and live with nothing. It is just our approach to them. Makes me think of Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that? You remember that? I'm going to misquote it probably. I probably could turn to Matthew, but I'm going to do it right now. About how the Lord takes care of the birds of the air. He knows, what, he knows what the birds of the air need, and, and he takes care of them. They have what they need. They're given what they need at the, by the hand of their gracious Father. And because of that, while birds do a good job of getting out and finding the worms or providing the, the things that they need for their nests, they don't, they don't sit around wringing their almost at hands. Birds don't have hands. They're, they're, what do birds have, Elijah? Huh? Wings, their feet, whatever, whatever it is, they, the claws, whatever it is that they have, worrying about how are we going to get it? What are we going to do next? Maybe that's a good example for us. It is, not, it is not a call to just sit at home and hope for the best. Those who are able to work, Scripture clearly teaches, should work. While recognizing that it is not our efforts, it is not our efforts that give us the things that we need. It is the grace and provision in the mercy of God. And because of that, we too can have a joyful unconcern as it relates to possessions. 
Simplicity is an inward spirit of trust. A trust in God that results in three main things. It results in us receiving what we have as a gift from God. It results in us knowing that it is God who protects what we have been given. Sometimes, sometimes God gives us something and, and, and the, uh, the, the, the protection of it or, or maintenance of it overtakes the joy that it was meant to give us. God says, what are you wasting your time for? You can't protect that. Trust me. Trust me to give you what you need when you need it. And then simplicity. As it takes root in us inwardly, as our, as our mind is made right, as it relates to possessions. It makes us folk who hold our possessions, as it were, with an open hand. As we receive from the Lord, we also recognize that we have opportunity to give. To give. To give, of course, in the support of the ministry of the church of the Lord, as so many of you so faithfully do. To give to those in need, maybe uh, that benefit from services outside of the church to support various charities. To give the things that you have that you no longer use. Simplicity will result in you having a right thinking in regard to what, is, what God has given you, trusting God to continue to provide what you need, and giving to others. Being someone else's answer to prayer. If we want to get down to the kind of the practical nitty-gritty of it, if we haven't done that as of yet, it will impact, it will impact the way that we utilize the resources that God has given us as we conclude our thoughts here. It will help us to be people who make purchases based on usefulness as opposed to status. We'll develop the habit of giving things away. We'll cultivate a deeper appreciation for the non-material, for creation, even enjoying the arts that God has led people to create, to where those things that you can hold in your hand become less and less consuming. That represents simplicity. It's so easy for us to, as Jesus warned in another passage in the gospel, become worried about many things. Maybe the message of the church in Smyrna, who would look at us today and say, wow, these, these 21st century folks in, in Kansas City, Kansas, who I, 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 I don't want to I don't want to uh, misread or uh, assume incorrectly, but for whom God has met their daily needs for years and years and years and years. Look at all that God has given them. And I don't say that to guilt trip us into simplicity. That's not the idea at all. But it is to help us to, and help me, to, to tweak my perspective a little bit and realize that one of the ways that we imitate the Lord Jesus, one of the ways that we're conformed to the image of Christ and, and, and progress in godliness, 
is through a right view of possessions. And so maybe God is calling us through the Lord's message to the church in Smyrna to the practice of simplicity. As we uh, prepare to celebrate communion, glad to be able to do that. We missed our time in February. We missed the first couple Sundays in February because of the weather. So glad to have the chance to gather around the table of the Lord today. I won't tell you for the sake of their own protection uh, and uh, they can maintain their anonymity, but one of my boys was talking to me about the service today and asking me how long I was going to preach. I assured him that we have communion today and I would be cognizant of that fact. And there was a sense of celebration that uh, maybe the dad would keep keep it short, right? Good way to keep me on, on task. So let's get right into it. We do move this morning into our our third city and third accompanying spiritual practice. Hope it's been helpful for you. It's been helpful for me in some ways to uh, try to piece these together. You may recall the suggestion that the church in Ephesus could focus on the practice of meditation. Last week we considered the church in Smyrna and maybe how simplicity would be the most beneficial spiritual practice for them. I, I want to stress, and maybe at the risk of overstressing, that none of these practices represent the quote-unquote silver bullet in spiritual progress. Neither do they represent some box. Okay, I can, I can check the box and move on to the next. Instead, they represent simply opportunities for God to bend our hearts, to bend our hearts more obediently to Him. So today we consider the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we consider these words. Plant them deep in our hearts, we ask. In your name, amen. Well, unlike the first two churches we've explored, the, one in F, the ones in Ephesus and Smyrna, the location of Pergamum prevented it from attaining the same sort of commercial importance. However, it was by far the most famous city of first century 
Asia. It had definitely definite claims to fame that the whole world would immediately recognize. It had one of the most famous libraries in the ancient world. So close was the connection between the city and literacy that the word parchment is derived from the name of that city. It was also a famous center of religious worship. You may have noted Jesus' description of the city included it being where Satan's seat is. The temple of As- sorry, Asclepius, the ancient pagan god of healing, was also in Pergamum. And so it drew those who suffered, who, who had some sort of physical issue from all over the ancient world to come to that temple in hopes that this pagan god would grant healing. Like several other cities in ancient first century Asia, it was a center of Caesar worship. So think of this city, Pergamum, the newborn church that existed there, and its call to exist in a culture of academic pride, the library, coupled with a heathen fervency. The specific words of instruction that the Lord Jesus gave to the church seemed to indicate that there were some doctrinal issues. There were issues in regard to what they believed and the teachings that they were receiving. We won't, we don't have time really to dive too deeply into these matters, but specifically there's mention of the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It seems to revolve around making accommodation to the pagan culture that existed in their city. You may recall another portion of Scripture and the clear linkage between living lives of godliness and good doctrine. Believing right doesn't ensure right living. (laughs) However, the two are designed to go hand in hand, that we believe and think well, think deeply about the things of God. It doesn't stop at our heads, though. It moves to our hands and our feet and our hearts. Likewise, likewise, if it doesn't exist in our heads, if we're not good thinkers, we risk wandering. We we risk losing track of where God has called us to be. In Pergamum, as the New Testament notes in other cities, there was a major controversy. And this is something that I think is is tough for us to to fully grasp. But it revolved around Christians and eating meat that remained after portions of the animal had been sacrificed to an idol. Can we? Should we? Do we? Those types of questions. And I think we can kind of grasp, I was, I was working to come up with an analogy, and I, I don't know that I necessarily have a good one yet. I'm going to keep, keep thinking about it. But the idea being that you have, a, for instance, a cow, right? And the cow is offered, a portion of the cow is, is offered in worship 
set aside in worship to a pagan god, a pagan idol. Well, you didn't burn up the whole cow, and so there's some of it that remains. Can Christians in good conscience join in, in eating what remains? That was a major controversy for the first century church. And in fact, like I said, throughout the epistles, there is reference to that. You remember Paul saying, in essence, don't cause your brother to stumble. Right? If, if, if you can do it, that's fine. But if you're going to somehow diminish or impact somebody else's faith in a negative way, don't do it. Part of what he's talking about is this very question. I think that's in Corinthians. Don't quote me on that, but I'm fairly confident that's where that, that's where that is. The crux of the issue was how can we live within the culture without living as the culture? Now, while the meat sacrifice to idols question is, is maybe not as uh, uh, applicable, the, the bottom line issue is, how, how can we live as salt and light? We don't believe that God has called us to, to cloister ourselves off, to separate ourselves fully. There are strands of Christianity that, that do. We, we don't. So how can we live faithfully as part of the culture without reflecting the priorities and, and, and necessarily not engaging all the practices of the culture? I'd suggest that the best way to ensure success in that quest has to do with good and faithful study. I'll caution, I'm not suggesting we're called to be Ivy League level scholars. Praise the Lord for that, because I would be out. But let's consider just briefly what the practice, the spiritual practice of study may include. Central to study is remembering the instruction from the Apostle Paul regarding our thoughts. Whatever is, remember that verse in Philippians? Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, think on these things. Practice of study has to do primarily with the practice of thinking. Thinking well. Thinking deeply. Thinking carefully. For me, thinking slowly. That time to think through something. A far cry from Scripture, but still a helpful thought came from Margaret Thatcher, who said, watch your thoughts, for they become your words. Watch your words, for they become your actions. Watch your actions, for they become your habits. Watch your habits, for they become your character. Thatcher recognized the importance, the centrality of what our thoughts could end up resulting in. Study, well, what separates the spiritual practice of study from an Ivy League scholar? What, what separates the spiritual practice of study from, shoot, my boy's doing their homework. Well, what, what's, the, what's the distinction between those actions? I suggest that study is transformed into a spiritual practice or a spiritual discipline based on two primary things. The content of our study 
and the spirit by which we engage it. The content consists in those subjects or, or things that lead us to the glory of God, the further consideration of God's glory. For the Christian, our study focuses primarily on Scripture, as well as there are, goodness, I, I was, I was uh, looking up a couple of months ago, a hundred books I should read. Right? Uh, just, just not even, not even specifically Christian. <clears throat> but what are the classics, right? That, that people way smarter than I agree that you should spend time, it deserves your time, and thought, and, and, and effort, and, and, and reading. Uh, they, don't, they don't fully agree on what those are outside of Christian writing. There are also classics of, of, of Christian writing. I can think of just a, a couple kind of off the top of my head. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called Pursu The Pursuit of the Holy, I believe. Uh, I would think of uh, uh, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, another kind of classic, uh, classic book. You could, even, you could even wade into Calvin's Institutes, right? Plenty, plenty of things that you know, there, there has been uh, PhD uh, dissertations written on, on all of those, and maybe we don't need to study it at that level, but to, but to uh, uh, allow ourselves, allow our minds and our thinking to have opportunity to be filled by those who have thought deeply. So there are the, the Christian practice, the Christian uh, uh, classics and writings and, and the study of Scripture. There's also the study of nature. You may think, well, this kind of sounds like the meditation thing we talked about in, in, uh, in Ephesus. Pastor, you told us to go watch the trees change over the last couple of the next couple of weeks. And we have a, a tree that we watch on our way to school. The boys and Catherine and I watch. And, and we're, we've predicted the date that we think that the flowers were, will be on that tree. So we're, we're seeing who's closest to when the flower will bloom and, and noting the change in, in season. And, and meditation and study are probably closely linked. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you that. But the, 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 the distinction comes in that meditation is focused on application. How do I apply what God is speaking to me about through nature or scripture or the, the voice of the Spirit? Well, study, study has more to do with interpretation. Not what do I do with it, but what is God saying? Okay? See the, see the distinction there. As we engage in study, our overall spirit must be humility both as students and, and learners. This is vitally important because the risk is, the risk is arrogance, right? I know all this stuff. It, it seems very pharisaical, you know? Let me tell you all that I know. We engage not strictly for the purpose of doctrinal purity either. We engage, again, to be transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. And because of that, as our motivation, we're willing to engage in the text of Scripture or nature day after day, even, even, even when we would walk away thinking, hmm, <laughs> I'm not sure I received anything necessarily new or fully transformative. Relative to study, just real quick as we finally 
wrap things up here. Four things. Four things, four kind of elements of, of study as a spiritual practice. Repetition. 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 Remember that in your own study in school? There could have been a number of ways that you were trying to take in the subject that you were learning. Maybe as the teacher stood in front of the class and he or she taught, introduced the subject, and and then you you went home and and you read more about it uh, in your homework. And and then maybe there was groups of students who studied together and and you created all kinds of things to, to, to continue to expose yourself to the subject, flashcards or, or other, uh, other, other ways to, to again, just to take in, take in the information that was being presented. We know, we know, those who, who study things like education know that to best learn, it is not a one-time, well, this is the, this is the information and uh, most of our minds are not Sharp mine is not certainly not sharp enough to just get it after one time. I need to hear it again and again and again and again. Repetition. It's a channeling of our minds in specific directions, and thereby our habits begin to change because our thoughts change, and as a result, our behavior does too. Concentration. The centering of our mind and the clearing out the clutter that often occupies our thoughts. Well, probably, probably in our culture today, the biggest hindrance to be able to engage in study. For me, if I need time alone to think deeply, I got to turn this thing off all the way. And it's not even, to be honest with you, it's not even, you know, somebody texting me or calling me or sending me an email. It's a thought that comes. Oh, I meant to check on that. I meant to check on. Uh, let, let's see, who, who, who won the basketball game yesterday between Missouri State and Drake that the boys and I were watching? Oh, I better, I better find out right now, right? The benefit of, of, a, of a phone is that you can find that out. The, the detriment of a phone is that you can find it out, right? It, it, it just is so easy, all this information coming at us. And, 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 and good spiritual study requires the decluttering of that, turning it off, giving yourself time, to think. Comprehension. The light bulb moment of understanding that brings insight and discernment. When that, when that, when that analogy comes to my mind about the, the meat sacrifice to idols in present day, oh, I got it. Oh, yes, that makes sense now. That moment that we've all had. We've all had. It takes effort. It may not come the first day. It may not come the first week. It may not come the first month but it's worth pursuing. And then reflection, finally. As that study and and that thinking about God and and the ways of God takes root deep in our hearts, all of a sudden, we begin to see things from God's perspective. I want to encourage you all, each one of you, to recognize your ability to engage in this discipline. You may say, oh, it's been a while since I've been in a classroom. Me too. <laughs> me too in a lot of ways. I'll grant that maybe not quite as long for, for me as, as some of us here. But God has given us minds to think. You all are great thinkers already. I'm encouraging you 
to do so in a way that is intentional and to focus on the things of the Lord. And because of that, we, like the folk in Pergamum, can do so with great joy. Amen.